want to see Tim Cook go up on stage, do his keynote speak, and then during his presentation, he says, oh, we're releasing the iPhone 17. Here's how it compares to the iPhone 16. And then Lightning McQueen shows up <laughs> on the slideshow, <laughs> and it goes, ka-chow! I am speed. And everyone cheers. Welcome to Use Case. I'm Austin Weber. And I'm Clinton Walker, and today our topic is Apple M1 hype. Yeah, and before we get, uh, you know, fully on the hype train, though, we're going to start with our trusty Get Trendy segment, where we talk about something we found on the trending page of GitHub. Yes. So uh, today, I noticed that there are several uh, repositories uh, from a, 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 an organization known as Signal App. Mm-hmm. Specifically, the one I found is uh, Signal iOS, but it looks like Signal is trending on GitHub, which is kind of an interesting way of uh, of seeing current events mm-hmm. kind of uh, you know filter out into the world. <laughs> because uh, there's a big hubbub on Twitter and a couple of other places um, about information that's collected by Facebook Messenger and WhatsApp, right? And it all stems from this uh, this new update that Apple has that includes privacy information in the App Store and shows you what different apps collect. And as it turns out, Facebook, through Messenger and WhatsApp, are collecting everything. Always. <laughs> Always everything. And not to be conspiracy theorist about this, but this is the stuff, this is self-reported privacy stuff. So this is the stuff they're willing to tell you about. Mm-hmm. And given that it's Facebook, and I, I again, trying not to be a conspiracy theorist here, but given that it's Facebook, um, what are the things they're not telling us? <laughs> right. Well, it's, you, you don't have to disclose everything that you aren't asked about, right? Uh, well, and... and Apple has said they intend to, you know, sort of monitor this stuff, this stuff, but it's self-reported. Right. It's they're relying on on you as the company to to self-report. Right. I mean, and the whole truth <laughs> of something, like the whole truth of what you collect, the whole truth of how you use it, is very much based on the question. Right. The way someone poses a question changes what the truth is as the answer. So. Depending on uh, how they interpret the question, they collect and use things yeah. to a certain extent that uh, might might have a better wording than other ways of saying it. Yeah, and on top of that, this is not just the data they collect, but the data that they collect and link to an identity, right? right. And that's the thing that's other that's also kind of troublesome. It's not just that they're collecting this stuff in the abstract, but they're linking it to you. Right. Um, and given that it's Facebook, they're linking it to you across probably several apps. You know, yeah. it's not just your WhatsApp data or your Facebook Messenger data, but they're also combining that with data that they pull from Facebook itself, from Instagram. Oculus. Sure. They pull your uh, Oculus VR <laughs> chat interactions. So, yeah, I mean, you don't know all of the extent of what they're collecting, but now, I mean, it's very... I, I was a little bit... Um, with with Apple, the way they do things, sometimes I'm just kind of like, eh, I don't really know if that's necessary. And this was one of those things. They were talking about doing this, creating this additional privacy thing. And I wasn't sure that it was going to hit the mark. But it does get you thinking, you know, what are people collecting? And specifically, not just collecting, because I honestly 
personally don't really care about anonymized data being collected, mm-hmm. but linking it back to an identity and, and, and knowing that it's me is where it gets kind of weird. So to stop talking about Facebook and to talk about the actual app, mm-hmm. um, I have not used Signal, but as I understand it, it's one of maybe two or three uh, messaging apps. And um, from what I've seen on Twitter and things like that, I haven't updated my phone yet, so I don't have the full privacy thing. Uh, but they don't link any data um, to your identity. In fact, uh, I was reading something earlier from Signal saying that the only thing they collect is your phone number, um, and they they that's literally it. Mm-hmm. And it's so that you have a way of, of you know, essentially a, a way of having someone be able to contact you right. is, is all it is. And they don't actually link that to anything. So, you know, there are alternatives out there that are nicer, maybe, from a privacy standpoint. Right. And that's a that's a thing you see a lot where it, it'll be interesting to see how much Signal specifically catches on. Because when the GitHub buyout came out, right? So when it was announced that Microsoft was going to buy GitHub, I hope I got my uh, correct multi-billion dollar company there. It was Microsoft? Yeah, Yeah, it was Microsoft. Microsoft announced they were going to buy GitHub. It was for billions of dollars. And it was uh, a big wave of people wanting to jump off of GitHub, go to something else. They wanted to go to GitLab. They wanted to go to other solutions that existed. Bitbucket's already kind of corporate in a way, you know, at last end. So go to GitLab, go to something else. Well, they don't have as nice solutions for things. They don't have the same integrations for things. They don't have the same tooling that exists. Uh, So I think we'll stick with GitHub. And that happened a lot with people where Mm -hmm. they were going to completely ditch GitHub and then they decided, okay, Microsoft's not that bad. And that's proven true in that case. Microsoft hasn't been that bad, uh, but there are a lot of cases where they can be that bad. We've seen other buyouts go much worse. There was a lot of concern, like the IBM buyout of Red Hat, where ah, oh, well, that's gonna go, that's gonna go downhill now. Uh, there's mm-hmm. a lot of concern when these buyouts come out and people want to switch over to certain things. Uh, it's really interesting in this case, though, that this support for Signal was prompted from a decade of things that have been building against right. Facebook specifically, right? Of different questionable approved purchases through the uh, FCC, FTC, which acronym am I supposed to use there? Initialism. Which initialism um, is that? Uh, I, I cannot remember who regulates what. I FCC, it's, probably. It's the FCC. Yeah, FCC. Yeah. Uh, they're not trying, to, not trying to smuggle anything across the border, so it wouldn't be the FTC. Right. Uh, that's my stand-up bit. So <laughs> it's interesting to see because the past 10 years, especially since about 2012, we th- so many questionable things have been happening with Facebook. We're buying out competition and things like that. And it's really been uh, a wonder to see the things they've had approved, uh, how they're buying things in other countries now, how they're buying a lot of things out of Israel and Europe and things like that. And uh, they're just constantly building, and they're collecting more and more data from right. across the world. And now the support for Signal is up. And it'll be interesting to see how well it stays up, right? Yeah. And th- this is this is what's interesting to me is that, you know, Facebook did a lot of this stuff. And, and this is maybe my personal opinion, but I think they did a lot of this stuff because they wanted to be anti-competitive, because they wanted to have, you know, no competitors. Mm-hmm. They made these acquisitions. Um, but now they've created a space in which companies can um, compete with them. 
purely mm. on the privacy standpoint. And right. that's what's interesting. It's like, right. imagine, you know, Facebook was saying like, well, if we can, you know, if we grab Instagram, which is the premier photo, you know, sharing app, and the way everyone shares their photos is through Instagram. You know, if we can grab that, if we can get WhatsApp, which is, mm-hmm. you know, the, you know, emerging communications, you know, if you can grab those things, then, you know, you can defend yourself. Mm-hmm. But where they can't defend themselves is on a privacy standpoint. They just right. can't. It's not – their business model doesn't support it. Right. They would and have th- to change everything they do. And that's one of those things you can't get back from people either. It's the same route of Firefox, right, where Firefox from the beginning – has been all on privacy, all on we want to work for you, we right. want to do things for you. And with recent things that have happened with Firefox, well, you start to lose people's trust really fast. Yeah. You start to lose trust really fast on privacy and reliability standpoints. And Facebook is not considered private or reliable anymore. Uh, it's really interesting, though. I really want to see this in the long term, probably over the next five years, you know, next five maybe better years. And we'll see if uh, the small local business wins out against Walmart, right? So people ward off Walmart, they boycott it, they say they'll never shop there again, but but Walmart still exists, right? We're going to see if that plays out in this case, where are we actually going to shop at our local uh, store and pay a dollar more for milk, or are we going to go back to the thing where, you know, your grandma's on? Right. That's going to be the thing to see is how well that works out. Yeah. Can is this for someone like Signal? Is this sustainable? Right. Can they actually pull off of Facebook? And I think I think companies should be looking at this because uh, of some moves again made by Apple. Mm-hmm. Apple has positioned themselves as the privacy, you know, the preeminent privacy uh, tech company. Right. You know, and that's. I mean, there's a debate as to whether or not that's true. Right. Right. I mean, they do collect all kinds of information. Right. They uh, made interesting, you know. interesting strides in encryption for messaging and things like but that. But they too. have, they have, and they've they've put some of that stuff front and center. And they've been one of the you know foremost companies in doing things like sending out notifications and things like that about, hey, this is how we're using this data. Do you want us to continue to use it this way? Mm-hmm. Which is annoying, but also interesting because it's trying to communicate in a way that says like, hey, like we understand you value your privacy. So we want you to know when we're breaching that and how and why. And if you would like us to stop, just tell us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think Apple has done a lot to to you know, to put that forward. And if other tech companies can take a look around, you know, that's one way to differentiate, I guess is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And it's one opportunity to differentiate. And that's exactly the kind of thing we need against a company like Facebook, which in my opinion, again, has has kind of become anti-competitive by nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if we, you know, that's one way, I mean, again, Facebook can't protect against that. If you can differentiate and build brand loyalty and trust on the privacy issue, Facebook can't combat you there. Mm-hmm. They 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 can pretend, uh, or 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 even they they could even not pretend. They could even go through a full um, you know redevelopment of WhatsApp and make it completely private. No one would believe them. Right. No one. They just wouldn't. And I mean, I wouldn't. You know. It would be it would be going back to an abusive relationship in that case. Once you're out of it, if you if you right. get out of it. 
you should not go back to it because they're they're not going they're going well, you, to lie to you. Yeah, there's no there's no trust there. So uh, once you lose that trust, it it doesn't come back. It, right. it really can't. Uh, don't 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 trust the the billion dollar corporations too much. Yeah, they're they're not that reliable <laughs> to you. So yeah, so I I think that's it's interesting. I think it's um, again this was kind of funny just to me because I looked at the trending page and said like oh I know why this is happening. Yeah, like I know why Signal is suddenly trending, and that's just kind of funny to see it in that context of like these you know whatever butterfly effects of like mm-hmm. these these wave effects of like Apple releases this thing it kind of gets blown up on Twitter and Facebook and some of these social media platforms and people start to think like whoa and then you've got people I've seen it all today where people are saying hey um, just so you know I don't use WhatsApp if you want to try and communicate with me it's Signal or Telegram or right. one of these other you know more privacy friendly Right, messaging services, and Facebook's been getting hit by slippery slopes like this for a while now, where they'll suddenly get a spike in attention or a spike in bad press. Mm-hmm. Of it's not exactly a slippery slope on the basis of it just happens all of a sudden. It's more of a large buildup, and then it just breaks on them. Yeah, and yeah, that, that's happened a few times over the past five years, especially of. It it builds up in very small amounts, and then as soon as as soon as some other thing comes up, it yeah, it's, it's avalanching, completely and, and, kills it. And you're you're, I mean, they're kind of covered in like, oh, these are all the bad things that Facebook has done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they they have a war crime list that they keep <laughs> adding to. So but. yeah, I mean, in, just interesting. Um, I don't really have much to say about the code. Uh, they have, it's. I think it's interesting that they have developed. Um, native well i say native but they have signal ios which is swift mm-hmm. uh presumably their android is um some sort of you know java uh, based i actually did not look uh i'd be really happy if it was kotlin that would be pretty cool um no but it looks like it's java uh well 99.9 percent uh, java okay well that's okay 0.1 python uh don't know what that's for. I don't that, know either. That's got to be build stuff, right? It's got to be something build related. Probably some kind of collection and deployment thing. I'm sure. And then they've you know. they've got a cross platform desktop thing that's JavaScript based. So presumably it's uh, Electron. Yeah, something but, Electron. So um, I thought I did think that was interesting that they did go kind of the native route um, yeah. as opposed to using some sort of cross platform. But then they went cross platform for the desktop app. So. Yeah. And that's that's a that's a thing of it. I guess it's your assumption too of, and this is you know your speculation of how your users do things. But mm-hmm. if your iOS and your Android are fast, people probably won't use your desktop enough for them to yeah, really, really notice care. that it's like it's slow JavaScript that's, code. And it, too. It's probably a, a matter of it, I would guess it's maybe probably the other much thing is faster a, too. A matter of being you know mobile first. Yeah, I mean messaging. It's yeah. mobile first. So you build out the mobile side, and when you build out the mobile side, you spend a lot of time and energy on it. Mm-hmm. And then once you've got the mobile side built out, you see if you can like maybe quickly mm-hmm. <laughs> slap together a desktop client so that people can have it everywhere. But right, just interesting uh, to see that as it's well. Really interesting, like kind stuff. of a look into um, into the, some business decisions behind it. Um, people get mad at the same time. It yeah, happens. people get mad at all at the same time, <laughs> and then, and then you see it, you see it manifest itself in uh-huh. weird ways. Like suddenly, the signal is trending. I'm probably going to talk about JetBrains in a little while, but I'll save that until we get to the, <laughs> until we get to the other part. I'll go ahead and talk about mine though. Uh, 
Yeah. Uh, what do you mine, got for us? Mine's not about controversy, though. <laughs> um, probably a few years ago, I got into different uh, Raspberry Pi stuff, right? And one of the things I was messing around with was the Sonic Pi application. So what's really interesting about it is that... Is that coming through on the audio? I can't tell. That's really weird. I think it's okay. It's probably fine. Okay. Um, oh, oh, wait. It's, it's gone away. Hold on. Okay, I'll pick back up. So a few years ago, when I was interested in doing Raspberry Pi stuff, I was probably around 18, somewhere around there, 17, 18. I didn't really start programming until I was in college. So I'd never actually really programmed until I was about 18 years old. But I did mess around with the Raspberry Pi around the 17, 18 mark of playing with Sonic Pi stuff, right? Of uh, Let me explain what Sonic Pi is. So if you want to make music on a computer but you want to look really cool doing it or you want to do it in like a slam poetry avant-garde style, <laughs> you can use Sonic Pi to do that. Um, if you look at a Sonic Pi performance of live code music, which is what Sonic Pi does, it's live code music, a person will sit there, type on their keyboard, hit their reload on the script they're writing, and, oh, they added a cool snare to the beat. And it's an interesting <laughs> thing to see. So it's... Live music, but it's live music development. It's very interesting to watch in a video uh, video platform. If you ever if you ever seem interested in watching someone program music live using uh, actual Python, you, you should look into it. It's really interesting, but uh, it just lets you play around with things. It's so interesting to play with a single note. You give it an integer value for a note, and you play around with it, and you're like, ah, oh, I want to play a C note, but I want it to sound cool. I want to add an effect to it. I just want to play a C note and then type up some code that does an effect to it and changes all kinds of properties about its attack and decay, uh, just how it does things. Uh, it's much more uh, interesting in the novelty perspective than like playing with a dial in a DAW or something mm -hmm. like that, right? You mess around with dials, you mess around with different sliders in a DAW, that's probably a lot more efficient. I'm sure it is. <laughs> but for the novelty effect of it, playing in Sonic Pi to mess around with notes and mess around with the structure of something you're making is very interesting. It's so much fun to do. Uh, if you want to have fun making some weird like techno cyberpunk type beat, some lo-fi <laughs> hit uh, you can play around in Sonic Pi and just mess with it. It's been around for a while. Uh, I've always loved it. But uh, you can go to some local coffee shop, set up your laptop, and start doing a Sonic Pi script with a projector so everyone can watch you do it. And you will probably talk about for the rest of your life because people will think you are really weird. But it is <laughs> such an enjoyable little thing to do. It's simple, joyful, and powerful. That's their that's their motto. This is really cool. I had no idea this existed. And it's uh, really, really cool. I, I wouldn't say it really popped up in trending. It was suggested to me recently. Um, this probably has never been in trending. I don't think it's really popular enough for that. But playing around with it when I was... Younger was so much that was like five or six years ago, so that's a while from now. But uh, <laughs> it was a lot of fun to mess around with. Um, yeah, that's really neat. It, it, it's super fun if you ever want to just mess around with something that's dumb. Uh, it can do a lot, it really can. You have MIDI imports, you can do all kinds of stuff with it. 
But uh, playing around with it is insanely fun. If you really don't want to take it seriously, if you do take it seriously, it's. It, I imagine it's very frustrating at points of just trying <laughs> to do adjustments when you reload things over and over again. And you just can't get it right, and you're just changing a number back and forth. Probably very frustrating, but that's that's it, awesome. It's a lot of fun. All right, so uh, time to board the hype train. Right. Um, and go full bore on the M1 chip and uh, the this fastest. Is, this is the first Apple thing that's ever been released where I actually looked at and I thought, wow, that looks kind of cool. <laughs> that was the first time I've ever done that. I typically right. don't like Apple stuff very much. <laughs> and that's a personal decision to not like Apple stuff very much. But as I look at all your Apple stuff around the room... Uh, But Apple has, I think, made a really interesting decision. I think this is one of the most interesting decisions with the M1 chip. Yeah, so uh, as I feel like has been noted previously, Mm -hmm. I am a little... I'm not a full Apple fanboy. I do like my MacBook Pro. I do have my iPhone. Mm -hmm. But the rest... You have the watch, too. I do have... You you caught me. Do you have any AirPods? I don't. Uh, I have fancy... Fancy headphones. I probably asked um, you that before, facetiously. Probably. <laughs> um, but, so I am generally excited by a lot of things that Apple does. That does not mean everything. See mm-hmm. uh, my opinion on the AirPods Max, which I believe are probably just overpriced cans. They're probably Beats headphones, recolored, and sold differently. They. I will give Apple this. They look cool. That is all. I guess. Um, <laughs> My Sennheisers look cooler, though. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but I, this this is one of the more exciting things they've done recently. And, I mean, I'm I'm a fan of some of the stuff they've done, you know, later iPhones and some of the interesting tech that they've built into some of that stuff. Some mm-hmm. of that stuff is exciting, but I don't know if I'm as excited as I am for the M1. This is, right. like, really changing a lot. Mm-hmm. about what they're going to do. And the fact that they were able to get the kind of specs that they got out of it, and we can talk about whether those specs, you know, what the what that means in reality, which is kind of hard to know. But given, you know, the the specs they were able to get out of it, the kind of stuff they were able to do with it, I'm I'm super excited about right. it. Right. And I when think- you when you use the phrase uh, hard to know about some of the things with their specs. Uh, I just wanna I just wanna <laughs> put the the idea out there. <laughs> That Apple is very secretive in a lot of ways, even with basic specifications of their machines. And I'll I'll, I'll talk about their graphs later. But <laughs> Apple is very secretive about a lot of things. When you look at research publications on Apple, mm-hmm. they, there's nothing about architecture. And to be fair, there's not a lot of stuff about Intel or anything else like that that has a lot of closed source, a lot of closed solutions. Right. Well, there's I mean, not a lot of research about the, things like that. The, but The research is the business. Right. So they can't make that public. And Apple is just, <laughs> they're so secretive about so many things yeah. to do with it. Like, it's we don't even have a confirmed wattage from Apple on the machine, not a specific right. wattage. We know the, the nanometer cut, but we, we don't know about the wattage because they're, they're just selectively yeah. secret about things. Yeah. I mean, I we couldn't even find in our brief research, we couldn't even find, um, an actual like dimension size of right. the like physical size of the ship. Right. I wanted to, I wanted to know a physical size 
to compare it to a, a classical solution of a motherboard, right. right? Of like what the size of a motherboard right. it's is. It's clearly going to be smaller than that. Right. I mean, based on what we know, it is clearly smaller than that. But, but the- as far as I know, it's 10 feet long because <laughs> whenever you search things about the M1, you cannot get any information about right. the physical size of it. I think the only way... I could know is to watch a video of someone cracking it open yeah, some, and measuring there's it. Some, there's a YouTube video somewhere of somebody cracking open the back of a MacBook right. Pro and, and measuring it. Probably but, breaking it in the process. Uh, well, certainly voiding the warranty. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I guess the question is, is how did they manage to make this thing so fast and so good? Right. Um, and, I mean, the answer is that, like, they've been working on these systems on a chip with the iPhone for ages. Right. And, like they were able to get a larger footprint, but still put everything on the same piece of of silicon. Yeah, I mean that's really what it boils down to is when you can have you know everything on the same board. I mean, all your overhead goes out the window, right? And that's what we mean by system on a chip in that uh, that that uh, space, right? Is right. You have memory. A processor, you have uh, other stuff. There's a bunch of other stuff. There's GPU all kinds of stuff. Cores and, yeah. GPU stuff. Uh, you have a bus that moves things around. Yeah, I mean, and, and typically in a, in a normal system, I mean, some of these components would have their own memory. I mean, we're talking about, right. you know, the processor has some sort of cache memory on it. You know, the, right. the you have the system memory, you know, RAM. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, if you have a GPU, then the GPU has its own memory and and so they're able to take all that stuff and put it on the same piece of you know the the same chip and once you've done that you you well for one you don't need all those separate different sources of memory right we have shared cache and shared memory across the system which is crazy the entire system yeah and that is strange (laughs) at least nowadays it's strange it's it's a lot different from what we're used to right if you think about it again there's so many benefits to having that shared system Mm -hmm. because again you don't have to um if you're if you're crunching numbers on the cpu and the system suddenly realizes that it needs to send something off to the gpu Mm -hmm. in a normal system it has to move some things around it might have to actually go out to the the system memory and load some of that stuff from the system memory into the GPU memory. Right. And then the GPU is going to crunch on that for a while. Right. And when it's done, it's going to put its results, you know, it's going to spit some stuff out back to the system memory. And then eventually the CPU is going to reach out to the system memory and 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 pull it in. Well, right. there's a copy and pay, you know, there's this copying of data over and over and over again, right? And instead of doing all of that, right, you can be really, really efficient and just have one single source of memory, one single source of cache that you can work from. And that's something you see in systems programming is, oh, well, we have this hard disk or this SSD, Mm -hmm. and it has some data stored on it. Well, the GPU needs to use it for something, so we copy it over to that. The CPU needs to use it for something, so we copy it over to that. Sometimes these things copy from each other even. Right. Of, oh, the GPU needs the CPU to do something, but we want to leave it in memory. So we just copy it over. And then your redundancy can be four or five times fold between different caches, different memory pools. Right. You might have uh, the same data in, in so many different components. Right. And you're reducing that redundancy by many times over. Yeah, It's hard to say exactly how many times over, depending on the system. But 
it, you're reducing it many times over, depending on what the application is and what it does. When you talk about things like multi-threading, well, if the different cores of a multi, uh, multi-core processor, eight cores, they have one shared cache. You just pull from that shared cache into your registers and use it. You have to duplicate in the registers, but you don't have to duplicate all the way down from like a dual core multiprocessor setup, right? Mm-hmm. So if you have two different processors with two cores each, well, they have different memories. So you have to pull into their cache. You have to you have to right. copy between their cache. We can consolidate that down into a more more cores in one processor with a shared cache. Right. That requires more optimizations to have a small cache size, but it reduces how much travel distance there is. It reduces how many times you have to copy something because copying can be expensive. And they've managed to do this across an entire computer, basically. Right. right. So it's it's all these, like you said, these these kind of micro optimizations. Mm-hmm. Right. It's it's reducing the amount of time we have to, you know, re- reducing redundancy in our data, reducing the amount of places we can store the same data. Um, but it's also, I mean, they're able to do things with, you know, larger read order buffers. So they're able to do smarter out of order execution mm-hmm. and things like that, that these are, again, these are, I mean, we talk about micro optimizations in programming, but this is like micro, micro optimizations. This mm-hmm. is at the CPU level. You know, you're really talking about tweaking, you know, the most tiniest things, but that's how you squeeze performance out of something like this. And that's the way you do it is by finding all the places where you have redundancy, all the places where you have overhead and just cutting them out. Right. Wholesale. Right. Uh, do you want to talk about some of the technical things about the ARM architecture over the Intel architecture? Sure. Because I think you're more familiar with those reading about those than I am. Um, yeah. I mean, Really and truly, a lot of it, a lot of it comes down to, like I said, talking about the the you know the reorder buffers and, and the differences in how they're able to do some of this stuff and the physical limitations. Um, you know, there, I, I was reading that that we have this article that we'll we'll have in the show notes. Um, that's from in, a software engineer who kind of looked over these these two different architectures, but essentially what it boils down to is the between things like word size. And, and the way that these architectures are, there is no way for um, the R, for for the these other architectures from Intel and, and AMD to reach the level of performance when it comes to reorder buffers and, and, and out of order execution and things like that. They're just inherent in the architectures themselves. Right. And so we're talking about complete and total rearchitectures from an Intel or AMD standpoint, which is not going to happen. You know, or or won't happen this year, and not next year, and maybe not for the next few years. Right. You know, and so it's these these differences in architecture, even at the CPU level, even without considering the fact that they are systems on a chip as opposed to discrete uh, parts, that they're able to do these kinds of things. Right. Um, these kinds of again micro optimizations that that bring a level of of performance and efficiency that you're just not gonna get out of any other system. Right. Um, and I mean, that's really what it boils down to, you right. know, it's, it's so interesting. The, the different, um, the different lessons that they've learned in doing these, these systems on a chip in mobile devices. And the, the reason they're doing systems on a chip on the mobile devices is because of size constraints, constraints, mm-hmm. but they're able to then take these lessons and apply them to a scenario where the size constraints don't exist. Right, and then when you're packing on 
GPU cores, right, like they are in the iPhone, and suddenly you tell uh, an, a, an architecture, uh, you know, a systems architecture engineer, you tell them, look, you don't have the size constraints anymore. They're going to be like, well, then I can just put a million GPUs, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like, we just have to make this thing fit in a laptop, not in a phone. So that's where you get, I, what's the number of GPUs? It's 17, is it 17? Uh, the GPU number is eight. Eight? Yeah. Uh, the okay. total cores throughout total is 32 cores is... or 31. Okay. That's 32 what or 31. The so, MacBook Air has seven GPU cores. That's what I was And thinking. the MacBook Pro seven, has eight. eight GPU cores. Yeah. So That's a lot of cores. 32 cores total. A, yeah. Yeah. So we have, uh, to break down the 32 cores, right, you have four high-performance CPU cores, which are, you want to do something, it's going to take more power, but you're going to do it fast. Right. Uh, four high-performance, high effic- high, sorry, high-efficiency cores. Get those two confused. Uh, so those are slower, but you're going to save a lot of power. So if you're out and about with your MacBook Air, you're going to be able to use those uh, high-efficiency CPU cores to... To extend battery life. Extend battery to a, an insane amount of time while right. still doing things in a decent decent yeah. computational time. Uh, the MacBook Air has seven GPU cores. MacBook Pro has eight GPU cores. And then both of them have 16 neural net cores. That's the cores. That's the other one I was thinking yes, of. Yes, 16 neural net cores, which is a lot of cores, but there's a lot of optimization in distribution of work in, in right, machine learning right. also. And that's the other interesting thing that they're doing in, in doing this is adding cores specific to certain tasks. So there's two different things that you can do um, with a system on a chip. One of those is like we've been talking, you share everything, you share resources. And by sharing resources, you reduce redundancy, you reduce overhead. But the other thing is, is that you can, you can have more uh, specific subsystems on the chip, mm-hmm. right? And Apple's already been doing this. Apple has specific chips in the uh, MacBook Pros and probably still has these chips in the MacBook Pros for things like their secure enclave, mm-hmm. for things like, um, you know, fingerprint um, identification. And um, I think at this point, most of the password stuff also throughout the system now it runs through the secure enclave. Right. So you have a chip that's entire job is to do encryption related things. Mm-hmm. So that's what they're also able to do is say, okay, well now we'll have these, these machine learning specific cores on the device and we'll expose those to app developers. And then developers will be able to do more things. Right. Right. Just the, in the way, in the same way that game developers spend a lot of time uh, looking at, you know, how to optimize things for the GPUs that are on the system. Right. You're now able to say, well, maybe we could optimize some of this stuff for those machine learning, you know, for the, for those, those cores. Right. And that is uh, a really interesting thing to see since uh, neural processing units have become a real item that people buy and use. And you have specialized machines like the NVIDIA NVIDIA DGX1, which mm-hmm. is something I actually work with. Uh, <laughs> and those are really interesting because it is traditional to see, well, traditional past few years. A lot of computations has been done, a lot of computations have just been done on a GPU. So right. you take a graphics card, does a lot of small operations, and you split up your arithmetic on a GPU and do it that way. Well, you can specialize that down even more right. for machines that are 
dedicated to uh, neural processing. So send it over to your DGX1. It'll do it really fast compared to whatever graphics card you're using. Right. Uh, maybe you even have your own desktop and you have a separate GPU and an NPU. And for machine learning stuff, you want to do it on your NPU instead of your GPU. So that is really interesting to see because... To me, these optimizations are not exactly consumer-wide yet. It seems that a no. lot of these optimizations are very much uh, enterprise-wide and university-wide, where, yeah, you want to buy a $100,000, $150,000 machine, it'll speed up your machine learning work. Uh, but at the same time, it's uh, it opens a lot of interesting things for people who buy their MacBook Pro with the M1, and now they have the ability to actually send off their machine learning operations to a dedicated right. uh, neural net uh, core area. Yeah, and, and the inter- interesting thing, is, like you said, you know, um, a lot of these kinds of things in the machine learning world aren't um, you know, consumer-facing. They're a lot on the, mm-hmm. like the enterprise and, and the, the academic side. But Apple has been a strong, uh, you know, you know, strong proponent of machine learning as a consumer good, mm-hmm. and they're they're pushing that through not just having these, you know, these machine learning specific cores, but within their development ecosystem, they have an entire API built around um, not just machine learning, but you know, augmented reality and and the kinds of things that you can do, you can. The kinds of things you can utilize those machine core, machine learning cores to do, um, and that's the other interesting side of that is having a a laptop that now has those additional features built in, and so you can start to tell developers, look, you can do so much more if you just use you know these features within our development ecosystem, right? Um, and and that, I, who knows very, what they'll be used for? That's very interesting too, in the perspective of. They can use it on their side. Apple can use it on their side for whatever kind of machine learning or neural net operations they need done. Right. On, oh, we need your uh, uh, personal assistant thingy right. to do whatever. In uh, We want it to learn from things. So we're going to send some kind of information and process it there. You could do that because it's just on the machine. You could you could do it locally. It right. doesn't even require a server anymore. Which, which it used to always require kind a of, server. Kind of harkens back to their kind of view on privacy. Right. Again, that's another opportunity for them to say, oh, well, we don't, you know, we don't need to send your information back uh, to, you know, um, Scary Corp HQ. You know, we can keep it right here on the device. And right. then, you know, we as Apple are guaranteeing you that that information never leaves this system. Right. You know. And that's great for them, too, that the consumer buys their own processing units. Right. So if the consumer buys this thing from you, well, now you can do a lot of these computations on their machine. Right. Instead of... instead of You don't need to send it off. Right. Instead of spending... Uh, instead of... Uh, of uh, using your own electricity, right. you know, back at you know Apple HQ, um, you know, you're using their electricity, right, <laughs> and their and, their time, and that opens up a lot of interesting things. And I think it is going to be really interesting to see that Apple has made this so available to people in that way. It's it's really available, and it's going to be great to see how they use it and how uh, random random developers use it and like mm-hmm. how like what optimizations they find are really useful through it which who knows maybe it'll go out of control and they'll form a complete legion uh, all the apple m1s <laughs> will legion together through their neural net cores but 
uh, I, I would like to see a billion uh, core legion come together <laughs> and see what they can accomplish. But yeah, it's it's interesting. It's really interesting that the the you know potential for for changes here and what they're able to do. And we're always talking about the kinds of the ebbs and flows of mm-hmm. of ideas throughout the kind of you know history of mm-hmm. computer science. And again, you know, you're, you're saying you know they they can rid you know they can they can get rid of some of the use of their you know, cloud services mm-hmm. in favor of some local things. And that just kind of reminds me of like, we've been, we keep going through these cycles where initially everything is in one central place and networked because that's the, you know, cheap way and easy way to do that. Mm-hmm. And then we say, well, you know, what if they weren't dumb terminals? What if they were smart terminals? Mm-hmm. And then everything starts to happen on the individual machine. And then we go back to, um, you know, we go we go back in the other direction with the cloud. Mm-hmm. We introduce the cloud and now everything is no longer on the machine. It's out there in the, you know, in the ether because that's cheap and that's easy. And now again, we find another case where we say, well, what if it wasn't a dumb MacBook Pro. What if it was a smart MacBook Pro and it mm-hmm. could do some of that ML stuff for us itself? Right. And so we'll see how they use that for analytics and mm-hmm. everything else too. That would yeah. be really interesting to see how they uh, utilize that for them and the consumer. Uh, yeah. Another thing that I find really interesting, okay, because we just talked about how cool the system on chip is, how it has 32 cores on your MacBook Pro. Yeah. Your MacBook Pro has one tiny fan. I'm not saying that's an advantage, but it has one <laughs> tiny fan and it has 32 cores of CPU, GPU, and machine learning stuff. All right. Well, Apple claims that the processor runs about 10 to 15 watts, 10 to 12 watts, depending on which which sources you look at to me. Uh, so somewhere in that range of right. 10 to 15 watts. Okay. Which is very few watts. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Intel processors, we see some of those running 165. Some of them run 135, 110, things like right. that. If we look at previous models where they've replaced the processors, so the, the MacBook Air Pro and the Mac Mini, where they replace the previous processors and everything right. else, the entire system. It's it's a system, so not fair to just say processor, but the entire right. but system. We're compare we're comparing the the previous processors. You know, processor. Right. So these these numbers are just the processor to keep that right. in mind, which uh, makes up a good bit, but yeah. not all of it. Not all of it. So when we talk about the MacBook Air and the MacBook Pro, well, they had a nine and a fifteen watt processor. Okay. And you're replacing that with something that about matches that from 10 to 15 watts. Yeah, except it's the entire system. It's the entire so system. Likely the entire system, you know, certainly the entire system for the the Air and the Pro were larger than 9 or more greater than 9 and 15 watts right. respectively. But again, we're in the same range. Right. You know, wattage-wise, we're we're close. We're talking close. Right. That's in the same. And we compare it to like desktop builds, right? When you talk about the range of desktop mm-hmm. uh, wattages of like, oh, I've got a 135 watt uh, CPU. I've got a 120 watt GPU, whatever it is. Right. You're talking about three to 500 watts on that. Mm-hmm. Those, are, those are some crazy numbers when you compare it to 10, 15 watts for a laptop. Well, 
you look at the Mac Mini, the Mac Mini wasn't nearly that low. It was probably somewhere closer to 100 watts because the processor by itself was 65 watts. Right. And, and again, cut that speed down dramatically. Right. They've cut they've cut down yeah, they've cut down on the wattage used by a whole lot because again, the the Mac Mini also has now this M1 right. chip. So now the Mac Mini went from being a 65 watt plus uh system which was definitely more than 65 watts if that's what the you know processor was pulling Mm -hmm. then you can pretty much guarantee that that's that's it's significantly more than that right uh as a system so i mean you're talking about potentially you know 10 percent right 15 percent of the previous uh wattage right which is crazy that's a huge difference especially considering that these models uh, I might leave the MacBook Pro out of that exactly, but these models didn't have the best systems. No, um, and that's what's crazy. You know, the the it's it's what's really crazy to me is they didn't have the best systems to begin with in terms of you know cooling and some of that stuff, which mm-hmm. which caused problems. If it gets hot, just shut it down. Well, if it gets hot, just throttle it. It's fine. <laughs> no, it'll it, it you know it's it what. Another interesting kind of aspect of that is that you know the MacBook Air everyone everyone kind of harped on the Air because the Air um, you know had a baseline heat that was very near the you know temperature the the ultimate maximum temperature threshold for the CPU mm-hmm. it had a baseline heat that means running the computer mm-hmm. <laughs> you know we're not talking about opening a browser so. It, when you're that close, you know, and it, I think the the Mac Airs had a fan, but it was not connected to the heat sink, so there was no direct draw. It was just kind of, you know, kind of indirectly cooling right. the system. Um, you know, that's a problem, and it caused problems. Right. Oh, it's just like your uh, common Harley Davidson motorcycle, where <laughs> we don't actually need to cool it if you keep driving. Uh, the engine will cool itself from the right. wind. It's perfectly fine until you stop at a stoplight in a city. Right. And then it starts to burn itself up. So um, what's interest, what, what freaked me out initially when they announced the M1 was they announced the new MacBook Air and that it did not have a fan, period. Right. So you had a device that already had heating problems mm. and you removed the fan. And I thought Im- immediately I thought, no. Um, it doesn't matter how cool this M1 chip is. It doesn't matter how awesome this M1 chip is. That device is going to suck mm-hmm. because, I mean, surely, I mean, surely they weren't able to to to, to create a system that that runs that much cooler. Mm-hmm. But if you're talking, you know, the kind of wattage difference we're talking, it seems possible. It's possible because there's still environmental factors to think about too. Sure, of- and and I am I am certain that the air will not see I, I'm I'm certain that the M1 in the air will be throttled. Right. It will have to. Right. Heat constraints being what they are. But the fact that, you know, Apple saw, you know, that drastic of a of a difference mm-hmm. in terms of wattage and certain things like that. I mean, you can imagine how they could think, well, maybe we don't need the fan. Right. And it's going to be really interesting to see the MacBook Air long term, especially as they release more models with right. not because necessarily the M1 but they're yeah, their future Apple Silicon. Right. The, the interesting thing is, is now they can start to tweak the body because yeah. I mean, if you removed a whole fan, there's a bunch of empty space in the current MacBook right. Air. There's got to be. Right. So if that's the case, then they can really start to get into some of the designs that they really wanted to do, mm-hmm. um, that they've been wanting to do in terms of sleekness, 
um, you know, how, how small these things are. Right. So that's, that's another draw for Apple. That's another reason why they want to go this route mm-hmm. again is, you know, and you can see in the future, potentially them creating a, a less, uh, a less good version of the M1 in terms of specs that they put in the Mac Air just so they can get it smaller. Right. I mean, that's where I see that end of it going, right? right. Let's it, get the body smaller. And then when we have the current climate of Chromebooks, right? Right. Chromebooks don't do very much. No. They are bare minimum, but you can browse, you can do certain other things with them, right? Mm-hmm. And in that environment, you probably don't need 16-year-old net cores. Uh, if you're no. doing any kind of local analytics, you can probably cut that down. You can cut down GPU uh, just enough to give you a nice, pretty display right? and cut things down to where it's even sleeker and probably runs at lower wattage, if these wattage claims are correct. I still want to point out, <laughs> they don't have an official wattage right. that they, they released some, on. some claims. Uh, but from preliminary testing, it seems that that part is okay, probably. Yeah. We'll yeah. see. And who knows, maybe they aren't going to release wattages because it's, I mean, it's possible that they're also doing things with, um, with wattage ranges where it right. really isn't going to run at a particular wattage. Right. The system as a whole is going to kind of vary its wattage based on usage and things like that. So maybe that's a reason that they didn't release those numbers. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's not, maybe they just didn't release them because it's Apple and they don't want to release them. Right. Um, but interesting to say the least. Right. So I guess we can talk about, uh, the Silicon, and how it's cut off. So, system on a chip. A system needs a processor. Apple has moved into an interesting territory because this is their first complete in-house processor mm-hmm. to begin. Well, actually, yeah, it is complete in-house, right? Well, for their for, uh, for the non-mobile. Yeah, yeah, for non-mobile. Right. Uh, I'm not sure the, exactly what that word is, but I guess non-mobile. The, I mean, it's not really desktop, right? It's like their laptop line right. and. And a portion of their desktop line because the Mac Mini is right. technically a desktop. I don't know. So they're moving into a weird starting point. But we have their first in-house processor outside of their mobile, mobile phone devices. Outside and of like the, the A A series chips. Right. So they decided to move to five nanometer silicon. Right. That's their that's their move. It's five nanometer silicon. What's interesting about this is that when you look at their competitors. So <coughs> Intel, Intel, <laughs> Intel, uh, which is probably probably the most interesting one to compare it to because Intel has common cuts around 14 nanometers, especially for their desktop, uh, like heavy desktop usage, mm-hmm. it seems. And this is this is uh, they have a, they have a varying history of different right. sizes, different right. cuts. Uh, and some of their mobile processors seem to be cut at 10 nanometers. And there are reasons for that. But it's really interesting to see that Apple is cutting at five nanometers on this very, very tight system on a chip when right. a- when Intel's cutting at 10 and 14 commonly. AMD has seven nanometer cuts on their processors. Right. So it's really interesting to see that Apple seems to be the first common consumer release, at least if, uh, from, the, from my yeah. knowledge, yeah. common consumer release that runs at five nanometers. That's really interesting. Um, so let's talk about why that's kind of interesting too. Yeah. Because uh, AMD has accomplished seven nanometer stable dies. Intel has accomplished 10 nanometer stable dies that have been released as far as what's been yeah. released. Yeah. Uh, Intel is looking at 
seven, five, and three nanometer technologies. They're trying to get their seven nanometer stable for release. Yeah. But they're and still looking at five and three nanometer technologies also. Right. So they're investing money in those. Three nanometers is really, really small. I mean, yeah, we're I mean that's uh, that's not something you can conceptualize. Yeah, I mean, at the, the actual size. What's crazy about that to me is I think at seven nanometers you start to get these kind of quantum effects. Right. Right. These kind of uh, this kind of instability. Right. Introduced, which again we're talking quantum instability. So right. So we're talking about the very nature of physics. Right. Right. So at seven nanometers you start to introduce that. So what the hell is going on at three nanometers? <laughs> right. And that's really interesting to see with Apple. It makes you wonder about how long they've worked on this and kept it discreet because to immediately jump to five nanometers seems improbable since uh, you have issues like quantum tunneling, electrons start to do all kinds of crazy things. Yeah, something, something alpha particles. Alpha particles. I, I still don't quite understand the part about alpha, alpha particles, but... <laughs> All kinds of things start happening when you get down to these very tiny sizes, when you get down to these atomic sizes. Uh, seven nanometers is where it seems to start. That's where it seems to start. Right. And it starts to bleed more and more as you get smaller. There, uh, for a certain amount of time, to my knowledge, has been uh, this very loose maximum cut of about five nanometers. Right. Where five nanometers, you cut it to about that, and once you go past that sizing, you're going to have a very unstable effect from uh, from quantum yeah. quantum entanglement and effects that, that show up. These things are going to be cut so thin, so small, that electrons themselves will start to jump around. They'll start to interact with each other. You can't keep them separated because mm -hmm. the dye is going to be so, so condensed. Yeah, so dense. And that's really interesting to see. Now, the actual physics behind that uh, probably evades me to a high level. <laughs> but to my understanding, that's really interesting to see that they went straight for a five nanometer dye. Well, and that, that I think is clear evidence that they've been thinking about this for a while and that they've been... They've probably been trying to work on a five nanometer design for their mobile for their mobile chips. Right. That's the only explanation is that they've been working on because Apple has been running the the mobile side of their chips for a while now, mm -hmm. and so given that they've been running the mobile side of their chips for a while now, you kind of imagine that they've that there's they've got a lot of research invested in chips. Period. Mm -hmm. The other thing being that really and truly this new M1 chip is not all that different from what they're doing in the mobile side. I mean, mm -hmm. it's larger. Um, it's right. got more stuff, but it's a system on a chip. They are using, I can, I would assume, and I have no, you know, you know, it's Apple. We don't have any real out insight, but I would assume that they're using a very similar overall architecture to what they're doing on the mobile side, mm -hmm. right? I mean, maybe, you know, you can change some, maybe things change a little bit as you get that larger size. Mm -hmm. um, but I can't imagine that that this comes out of the blue. They've been looking at this for a while. Right. And systems programming is very hard. Right. So it has to be some result of very heavy, very heavy research and testing they're doing in their Apple, their Apple internal. Right. right. And uh, uh, I don't have personal experience with Apple's research division, but I imagine that oh, yeah. this is 
uh, a result of something they've been trying to accomplish for a long time. They probably tried to apply it to all kinds of different domains. Mm-hmm. And this was the one that actually worked out in the end first. Right. Yeah. The fact that they were, it, I mean, it's, it's possible that, you know, they've had the research there for a while. Mm-hmm. And the question was, can we do it in the mobile chip? And maybe it's just easier. I mean, I could see how it might be easier to, um, you know, reduce some of those quantum effects potentially, um, in a system that doesn't need to doesn't need to be so dense. Right. It is very dense, but when you're talking about a system on a chip in a laptop, mm-hmm. I mean, there's got to be more space. Uh, you know, you're, you're working with more space. You're not working on this kind of uh, size constraints. You know, in terms of like dimensions of how big the chip can actually be. Right. And Apple needs these profit margins too. So in the case that it proved highly costly to design this in the uh, mobile phone platform, it could have been a decision on cost of, well, we get our systems programmers on it and, and we get a design that works for a laptop. Well, that's successful and it's under budget for what we need to sell it at. That could be another thing too, that their profit margins actually work out in the laptop division, the Mac mini, the Mac mini division, right. in terms where of, yeah, cost. we can actually do this right now. Right. We can do this yeah. right now. Yeah, we won't be losing money on it if we try to implement this right now. Right, and it's it seems, and I've read a few things about this where certain decisions about like how they're designing it, the type of memory they're using, mm-hmm. because there seem to be some people who questioned their use of L, oh my God, LPDDR4X over LPDDR5. I think that might be the the right. Uh, the right descriptions. There were some questions about that. I, I'm not too familiar with right, exactly specifics. why those decisions would be made, but there there seems to be assumptions about cost saving, availability of resources, things like that. We yeah. might see, especially after a couple of years go by from the last year, that resources might come back in the stock that they need to do certain things, and prices of resources might drop to where they can try out new things they've wanted to try in the research division. Right. And well, the other thing they, they might see is, you know, what people were willing to spend um, on a MacBook before might change in terms of their, their understanding of that value. I'm going to be honest. Right. I know I overpaid when I bought my laptop. Mm-hmm. I have a pretty nicely specced out MacBook Pro that I bought like two or no, four. God, I don't, let's not get into how long ago that was, but I spent a lot of money on it. It's very nice. It's going to get me through for quite some time. Mm -hmm. But I know right now I could get a machine from Apple that's two, maybe three times better than what I've got for less than what I spent on this Mm -hmm. one. And so the question becomes like, are they, you know, maybe they're able to come down on their prices or maybe they're able to, you know, have a higher margin Mm-hmm. of profit off of these same devices. Right. And that's an interesting thing to see. I mean, I personally would really love to see the MacBook Pro prices kind of decrease. Right. But even if they stayed the same, the value of these with these chips, the value is is much higher. Right. You know, I, I don't know if you buy a spec'd out MacBook Pro right now, I, I would not be as quickly to say, you know, you know, you, you realize that you're over you're overbuying. Right. You know, when you look at those base model MacBook Airs at about $1,000, that's interesting technology. 
it probably works well enough. You you would have you'd be questionable about, about the heat. Yeah, there are questions about that, but it's if it proves to hold up over the year test. So if we see around December of ne- of the current year of time we're recording, yeah, I forgot what year we were in. <laughs> uh, at the end of this year, yeah, maybe it would show that these these do hold up over time. Maybe they don't melt themselves, right? Because that's a real concern in a tightly tightly cramped together system on a chip. I can't tell the physical distance in real re- in real terms, but by mm-hmm. reference of how big it is, it's very tightly packed together. Right. It's a lot of silicon together, a lot of transistors together. Uh, what are the chances that in a MacBook Air, it just melts itself over the long term and the <laughs> solder comes undone? Right. Who knows? Uh, so I guess we'll I guess we'll uh, get off of the the nanometers, but. It's going to be really interesting to see how these hold up because are they are they going to be long term stable? Right. Are there some kind of issues that they might have that aren't? Yeah. Are we are we going to see a new new kinds of issues appear right. with these new you know these these new uh, chips? Right. And we'll see we'll see if those issues come up. Give it about a year, year and a half. We'll see if those <laughs> issues come up. M one part two, uh, December twenty twenty one. Yeah. So, but the interesting thing about all of this uh, that I think we really wanted to talk about, you know, in conversations that we've had before recording this, is that uh, you know, nothing, nothing's new under the sun, right? Right. Right. Um, and so we're talking. Apple. Apple has coined this term or pushed this term "system on a chip." Right. But, and that is uh, "system on a chip." That's. <laughs> Probably a little bit coined, but the system on a board definitely isn't coined very much, right? Right. So when we look at the old days, like the 1980s or whatever, uh, if we look back to the old days, long before that, uh, I, I guess I'll I guess I'll go way back, 1940s, right? Let's talk about uh, Christopher, right? A bunch of tapes. You put a bunch of tapes. You put them on a big machine. You make the tapes go do do do. You have Turing machine, <laughs> and t- t- Turing completeness episode uh, nine. That's not the right episode, <laughs> but you have a bunch of tapes. You make them go boop boop boop. They go back and forth. You make them do something. It's very dedicated. It's a machine that does a specific thing, and you make sure it does that specific thing. That's what you're doing when you make a computer. We fast forward 30, 40 years. Computers do more. But the architecture is still very highly dedicated in a certain way. So before we had modern computers, before we had RAM slots and PCI Express and uh, dies for uh, uh, processors, mm-hmm. it was solder, a lot of lead, a lot of zinc. Right. Whenever you would put together a machine in your garage, as it used to be in the old days, you would take a bunch of solder, you take transistors, you take your processor, you right. solder it all onto a board in the correct way. It works together. You had custom boards made for a lot of things, almost everything at a certain point. Mm-hmm. And you solder it together, it does the thing, right? And that was what uh, that was as far as modular went, was the fact that you could unsolder a CPU and put another one in, maybe... Maybe. If Maybe. the pins all lined up and did the same if thing, If it had the right pins. <laughs> then it could be swapped out. And that was how it worked. And they were much more, uh, much more difficult to work on from what we see today, where you have 10-year-olds take, a RAM, take the RAM out of the computer and pop a new one in. You just right. smack it in there hard enough, and it locks in. 
Well, in the days of uh, monolithic operating systems, monolithic systems, uh, operating uh, operating systems, uh, computer systems. Right. You build them, you put them together, everything's soldered together, and changing anything out is not something that the average person is going to be able to do very well. Right. For you to have something swapped out, you probably need to take it to a shop, have some dude who actually understands it, unsolder it, and put the new thing in. Uh, that started to change when the architecture of motherboards and the architecture of these devices was reevaluated. And we said, okay, well, this can work together. These pins do the same thing as these other pins. Right. We start to get we start to get standards. Right. And that happens in, in in all industries, right? Initially you start by just making the thing the way you want to make it. And then eventually, because you realize that there's some benefits from allowing people to specialize, you start to create these open standards. People can use these standards to create parts that work together. It's how we do just about everything. Right. Everything starts as all in-house and slowly becomes, you know, standardized so that you can swap things in and out and all of that kind of stuff. Right. And we see these IEEE standards and other other national, international standards that exist of like how your RAM is built, which right. isn't simple. It's 240, 288 pins based on different ones. Right. It's a lot of pins, but they have a certain way they do things. They have a certain way they're built. And if you design it to interface with those pins the way they're supposed to, it doesn't exactly matter how the rest of it's designed. They're physical standards, too. Right. But you can design it however you want to work with those pins mm-hmm. to do what it needs to do, and it plugs into your motherboard. Well, this, uh, this design that uh, Apple's going with, we've already seen it from them in a lot of ways, right? Where you look at the Hackintosh community, mm-hmm. where people... Uh, scrape by trying to get parts that work together to make uh, <laughs> make OSX detect that this is an actual Mac, right? Right. So you find the certain parts that work together, you put them together and go, ha-ha, this isn't actually a Mac, and you've spent 30 hours trying to get this computer to work when it, it really, you could have just put Windows on it, it would have been fine. <laughs> but you wanted to put OSX on it, right? And that's an interesting thing because Apple has already started making these moves. We see it with mobile devices commonly now. We see it with Apple's OS X approach of a MacBook has this OS. It has these certain types of parts that can work with it. It can do that, but it's not entirely integrated yet. In some cases, they were, in fact, soldered on directly, but it wasn't fully to this effective system on a chip the way we see. It's really going backwards to the old ways of... You have a board, you solder everything into the board, you put it all in one piece, and you put it in the computer, and it works. works. And there were a lot of advantages to that. When we look at the term monolithic, uh, monolithic kernels, uh, monolithic operating systems, monolithic architecture, there were a lot of advantages to that. You knew exactly what kind of processor there was in that computer. You knew what kind of memory it had. You knew everything about that memory, all the specifications about it. And in the modern day, when we talk about how a microkernel in a computer is built for an operating system. Like it's bare bones and it finds ways to interact with all of its programs. It has certain ways to interact with its programs, but it doesn't know everything about how it's going to interact with them because it doesn't know everything about its memory. It doesn't know everything about its processor. The processor doesn't right. know everything about the memory in the operating system. It, it just is designed to fit into a system a certain way and it has certain uh, specifications to how it's built to where it can be modular. Right. Right. And we saw this 
uh, happened a long time ago with things like Linux and Unix, where we moved away from the monolithic operating system and designs, and we started going to a platform where your operating system and processors can be different ones, right? barring some physical constraints, right? and they'll just work together. They'll figure out how to interface with each other through these abstract methods. Right. They're going to abstractly interface with each other through message passing, where they pass things back and forth to one another and don't, know, don't have to know everything about each other outside of it fits on this motherboard and we're going to interact with it. And that's a really interesting thing to see how we're going back to that because there are trade-offs to modular architecture. Right. Well, I mean, a lot of the trade-offs ultimately are in efficiency, performance, and things like that. I mean, you, you introduce overhead. I mean, you just, you, when you say the word abstraction, uh, abstraction is another word for overhead. Mm -hmm. Like you, you, you create these layers that have to, you know, they have to shake hands and figure out what's going, how they're going to communicate. Then they have to communicate, right? And and the way in which they communicate may, may not be the most efficient way they could communicate, right? You know, these kinds of differences, right? This this um, you know this kind of run everywhere approach for certain things does mean that we take hits on performance, and it's always a balance, right? And that's the interesting thing in a lot of ways as computers became more performant, as the individual parts became more performant, then it made more sense to be modular. Right. Right? When you had a 500 megabyte hard drive, storage was incredibly important, Mm -hmm. right? So uh, say for the old uh, Super Nintendo games, there was a lot of optimization in Super Nintendo games. When you had megabytes to work with, how are you going to do compression? Uh, Super Mario games invented new compression methods there were amazing ways you could optimize things because you had to to make it work correctly. If you wanted a game that was the way you wanted it, well, you had to figure out how to make it work. And we started to abandon that at a certain point of, well, now you have so many gigahertz on your processor. You have so many cores, terabytes of storage. What's a cycle or two? Uh, My video game doesn't need to be anything less than 100 gigabytes. What are you talking about? (laughs) Why does it need to be less than 100 gigabytes? That's perfectly acceptable. And we started to abandon optimization for the sake of convenience of communication. And it's it's a, a back and forth cycle. It's a zigzag. Right. Oh yeah. Of we want to have more uh, universal communication. Okay, we're going to do that. Well, we've just added some speed deficit, and we've also added more complexity to it. When you talk about these message passing methods, uh, even between something as simple as an operating system to the file system it has to how it interacts with different types of files, message passing and complexity are heavy. Right, the systems programming is heavy, and this is this is you know why these engineers get paid so much at Apple too, <laughs> is uh, that that is such a complicated thing to deal with, especially right. in in the the sake of like oh well, you want Microsoft Windows to work on everything, you want it to work on any kind of computer, you download Windows and it just starts doing stuff. Well, you got a lot of complex messages; they're very large. Very complex. You need to account for all kinds of different conditions, and it just got to, it has to work universally with everything. Those mm-hmm. abstractions add so much complexity. It makes it harder to work in that environment. Uh, uh, barring the speed deficit and how uh, how much data you have to use to do a simple thing, which are two really big things, it makes it harder to work in. When you talk about uh, a simple programming language versus a simple architecture versus something simple. Well, those things are great to work in because 
you can do a lot with a little. You can do so much more with very little effort compared to, well, we have this universal architecture, this uh, this certain Intel architecture, this certain motherboard architecture that works with all kinds of things. Right. Well, it, it might be more complicated because you have to work with all sorts of yeah, things. Yeah, because you have to handle, um, you know, you introduce complexity the more um, the more different combinations of these things that you have. Right. Accounting for more conditions, accounting for all kinds of possibilities. Right. It makes everything so much more uh, complicated. And you go back to those monolithic computer systems that Apple used to have. Things like the Apple II, the Apple Lisa. Those were monolithic computer systems. Uh, the Lisa uh, was a flop. Yeah, sure. But it was really cool. Uh, the Apple II was really cool also. And it's not that much different in the system on a chip we see now versus then. They had parts they knew what they were. They put them together. They put them in a big box, and they shipped it out. Right. They, you don't expect anyone to change the parts. You probably don't make it very easy for them to. You're not going to give them a, a quick way to do it. Right. And that's what we see with the system on chip now. And even with some of other some of Apple's other that's laptops and such, they were still already hard to deal with. That's already hard to maintain yourself. That's what's kind of like so like duh mm-hmm. about this for Apple is like they were already there. Right. They were. They had all of the drawbacks of a closed system. You can't easily swap out parts. They're hard to work on, all of that stuff. And none of the benefits. Mm-hmm. Because instead of having what they have now, you know, Apple M1 chip, this, you know, this this whole system, what they had was, you know, four-year-old Intel chips, mm-hmm. right? You know, four-year-old uh, GPUs. You know, they, they didn't keep them refreshed. They were hard to refresh, mm-hmm. you know. I would imagine they're hard to refresh. I don't see any other reason why we would go years and years without having a refresh on these things when, you know, most manufacturers will release a re, uh, you know, refresh with every Intel processor that comes out. Mm-hmm. You know, meanwhile, Apple is three or four, you know, generations behind. Mm-hmm. So I, that, you know, they were, they had all of the drawbacks and none of the benefits. And this just makes sense. Right. If they're going to stick with a, a closed ecosystem, they should at least own it. Because right. then they are able to do all of this stuff that we're seeing now. Right. And it's not it's not a new idea at all. It's no. the fact that they have taken something they were building up to for a long time, something they were, I guess, trying to keep the consumer in, something they were trying to keep them doing, dealing right. with Apple directly. And there, there are some disadvantages to the M1 in the sake that you need Apple to do anything with it. Right. You need them to work on it. If you live in certain places, you're not going to have an Apple store around to do anything for you. Right. You might have to ship it out of your country, depending on where you live. But for those people who live in California, well, oh, that's really easy. You probably walk to the corner and find an Apple store. Well, and I mean, even you know, in a lot of cases, I think a lot of people are expecting to not have problems with it. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, again, we don't know. But, I'm expecting problems. But um, but I'm expecting really interesting problems, too. <laughs> I well, think... and we'll see, right? I mean, I, the, the thing is that Apple's promise has always been, like, we don't mess up, but when mm-hmm. we do, we'll take care of it. So mm-hmm. we'll see what the what the deal is. You know, I, you're right in thinking that, I, that there will probably be a whole new set of problems that mm-hmm. we haven't even considered. Um, you know, considering the the quantum entanglements and all the issues that we we could potentially see, mm-hmm. um, but um, I, I mean that's that's kind of Apple's mo, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to push the cutting edge. If we screw up, we'll fix it, and you know, otherwise, you know, you're going to have a great product that's going to work. I, I can't wait to see what kind of problems they have because yeah. whatever comes up, it will be 
interesting, right? I think it'll be really interesting to see. The general public probably won't have a great insight into it, which is the the downside of you know dealing with companies like this where right. there's a ton of secrets. It's secrecy. But uh, I think it'll be really interesting to see what the public information what public information comes out about the types of problems that you see in this new architecture, this new very small, I, I guess, I don't know how big it is still, <laughs> uh, small system on a chip that fits into a mobile laptop without a fan and claims it runs nicely. Yeah. I want to see what happens. But well, that, that I'm not a fanboy. That, that brings us to the last section of this. I'm not a fanboy. Okay, let's look at the notes. What's, the, is, what's the notes uh, say? Oh, what? Apple doesn't know how to make graphs. Okay, hold on. Okay, so we need to talk a little <laughs> bit about, about ways in which, you know, maybe this thing is overhyped because we've been hyping it all day. And, and very clearly, um, you know, we're, you're not an Apple fanboy. I'm not. I am not. I would not classify myself as a fanboy, though I am. I am a fan of some of their products. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, but I think we we owe it to ourselves and our lovely listeners to um, to kind of combat some of this hype and talk about you know what's what's really going on here. Because um, yes, the stats that they've put out are awesome when they are mm-hmm. stats and not faceless graphs or right. numberless graphs. Should okay. I say? Okay, a couple of things. A couple of things. <laughs> okay, you watch. You watch the release, the actual. Uh, I did not watch it as it occurred, okay. but I did watch parts of it afterwards. And you can confirm to me they use these images. They always do. The okay, they always do. So there's a thing about how you present data to people, right? In statistics, in general mathematics, in marketing, how you present data to people has a a varying varying spectrum of like ah do you want them to feel like it's cool do you want to give them raw stats and let them interpret it themselves apple is very much on the cool side (laughs) so when apple tells you things like up to 3.9 times faster video processing they aren't going to give you raw numbers with that they're going to give you a little bit of stats about the systems they're testing on, but they're pretty much just going to give you cool pictures. Like this picture for the layout of the M1 is really cool looking. Oh, yeah. Where it's like, yeah, you got this RAM, this big old cache and a RAM and a neural engine, <laughs> uh, whatever neural engine really means. Uh, it's it, it looks really cool. But uh, these graphs are horrible for anyone who wanted actual numbers. I, you scroll through these pages they release, and there's very few actual numbers. Let me let me just say the CPU performance versus power. Now, someone took a lot of time putting together these statistics for uh, doing benchmarks. Right, mm-hmm. they t- did a lot of benchmarks. I'm sure. I'm sure they did. They probably got paid very well to do it. They handed it over to the marketing and graphic design department, and graphic design was like, "Hey, you know what? We're gonna put this line." that says latest PC laptop chip on it, and it's going to be like, okay, and then the M1 line is going to be really good looking. It's going to be higher <laughs> than the latest PC laptop chip. And that is pretty much how how Apple statistics works whenever yeah. they release something for people to, to look at. It's th- no X and Y. Sorry, there is an X and a Y, but it's just it doesn't really mean anything. And uh, yeah. they just give you these cool images. That's okay in a lot of cases, especially for your shareholder meetings. I'm sure those go really well in shareholder meetings. But it leaves a lot to be desired when they throw these numbers at you. But don't give you raw baselines of what they actually right. mean. 
Yeah, and that's the thing, right? So, okay, we do have some numbers. Um, They come from not Apple, right? They come from independent benchmarks. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have some fancy graphs from Apple that say this thing kicks butt, Mm -hmm. um, but not really specifically how or why. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, I mean, beyond that, what do we have, right? People are going to have to buy this thing. They're going to have to use it. They're going to have to decide if it works for them. Mm-hmm. And I think for the vast majority of Apple users, it will. Mm-hmm. Um, but the question is, is like, does it actually live up to the hype? Is it actually as good as they say it is? Mm-hmm. You know, and I don't know that we'll know that until we've got, you know, a couple of years of usage. It's like the, you know, when they refreshed the MacBook Air, it spec-wise looked really, really good. And I'm talking about the previous refresh. Um, but then, of course, they had all those thermal problems. Mm-hmm. And two or three years into that refresh, people knew if you were buying the MacBook Air, you had to be ready to have thermal issues. Mm-hmm. Um, the fan would run all the time, period. No questions asked. It was just going to run. Didn't matter what you were doing. you know. And it would run high speed all the time. Mm-hmm. And the CPU would always be throttled with the fan on. And mm-hmm. you knew that. And if that was fine for what you were trying to do with it, great. But if you needed anything more out of it, you weren't getting anything more out of it. Everyone knew. Did Apple say that when they refreshed it? (laughs) No. Right? And that's the thing. Right? We don't know 100% what it's going to look like in real life. We Mm -hmm. know what Apple is telling us. And I'm not saying that Apple's being intentionally, you know, trying to intentionally, you know, obscure things, but they're kind of secretive about their numbers. Um, right. Maybe they have the, the, they take the philosophy that these numbers are hard to understand anyway. Right. So why give the numbers? Um, I and mean, we talk about like the secrecy and the uh, obfuscation of details of things. And this is something I wanted to just make a comment about was... With the MacBook Pro with the M1, the MacBook Pro has the same claim as the other M1 chips, right? That it Mm -hmm. runs 10 to 15 watts. And by some reason, Apple is shipping a 61-watt power adapter for the MacBook Pro, right? Right. I, I just wanted to make a comment about this, right? There's all kinds of reasons why I could do this. One, that was the that was the uh, adapter they had yeah. previously and that's just they're going to keep using those, they're going to keep produ- I mean, producing them cheap. It's they've cheap. already got the manufacturing in line for right. them. Why change it? Another reason could be if a person sets up their 13-inch MacBook Pro at a workstation. Mhm. And they're at their workstation. They're probably going to have it plugged in almost all the time. If they're actually running peripherals that take a lot of power, you can bypass just using the machine at that 15-watt output and use the power adapter, which is a common way that laptops work anyway. Right. If you have your power plugged in to a strip, if your power adapter is plugged in, most of the time your laptop's going to bypass the battery in in a lot of cases, not going to say all, right. you never know. But in a lot of cases, it's bypassing the battery entirely right. and using the direct power from the ground to run the laptop. If you're at a workstation and you're running a bunch of peripherals in your MacBook Pro, if you have the 61-watt power adapter plugged in, if you're pulling 40, 50 watts, then that's fine because the power adapter is going to deal with that. But if you were to unplug it and try to run all these peripherals in your MacBook Pro, which mm-hmm. is supposedly puts out your 15 watts, well, it might be that it has a power overload with that. It might right. be pulling too much. It might have to cut some things off, cut some ports off, throttle, whatever it has to do yeah, to deal with that. Yeah, you might see some different things. That uh, but in the case that someone's using it for a real workstation setup, 
61 watt power supply is going to be plugged in you can do with that right so it's those kind of things like are they being deceitful if that's how it works right or is it just assumption and pretty probably a pretty good assumption in that case that if someone's going to be using this as a workstation laptop right if they're, well, they're going to be able to do that. if they're running a significant number of peripherals on it they're probably going to plug it in anyway because they would probably expect the battery to drain Right, and I like, so, to, I like to walk around and use a ton of peripherals hanging off my laptop. Right. That's yeah, that's the uh, other thing. You'd figure it's probably pretty stationary. Right. So I guess the last thing we can end on is the Silicon Ready website. Yeah, this is neat, um, and it kind of popped around and kind of popped up and kind of made its way around various circles mm-hmm. when they released it, uh, when they when Apple released uh, M1, and it's is AppleSiliconReady.com. And uh, it's a neat repository of all the things, all the apps that you might want to use on a Mac. And it gives you a really nice breakdown of, is it ready to run um, directly on Apple Silicon? Does it have M1 support? Or is it going to have to run through Rosetta 2? Um, I don't know how much we actually talked about. And we have not talked about Rosetta at all. No. Um, But just kind of quick recap. um, Apple, this is a new architecture, which Mm -hmm. means that in order for apps to work, they would have to be recompiled to target this new architecture. Assembly don't work good on different computers. So, uh, to stop, to to allow developers to not have to immediately do that Mm -hmm. and still have support, Apple has created this emulation software that is automatically running within macOS called Rosetta 2. And it allows, um, you know, uh, Mac, Mac apps that originally target the the Intel x86 architecture to run direct to run on the M1, right? Um, and they have done some really cool things. And everything that I've heard about it is that you know performance is uh, that that no one has noticed a significant performance hit due right. to it, which probably means that the M1 is a killer chip. <laughs> for one, right, and two, that this Rosetta software is at least decent, right, uh, in terms of how it manages to run these these um, these devices in an emulation type type deal, right. And this isn't the first time Apple's done that either. They no. did it previously with the first Rosetta software, which was when they transitioned from the PowerPC architecture yep. over to the Intel to architecture, right, uh, because Intel has used multiple architectures over or sorry apple's used multiple architectures right. over its history so they did this previously and it worked yeah uh i'm not sure about the specifics of it but it worked for it worked for that time period and it seems that they've done pretty well with it this time too yeah so that's really cool um that's an, but that's another reason why um you know maybe uh the hype is a little bit you know overhyped because a mm-hmm. lot of these apps out there are still not quite M1 ready, which means right. you're going to be running them through emulation, which means you're not getting the full fanciness that is the M1 chip. Right. You're, you're still using Intel processor code for a lot right. of these programs that are not specifically compiled to the M1. And that's, that's going to cut out a lot. Yeah, it's, that's, that's certainly going to take, um, you know, take out a, a lot, if not all, of the advantage of using the M1 chip to begin with. Right. Um, that, that emulation layer is going to cost. Right. And the you know, Apple is banking on it costing about as much as they gained. Right. I think is what they're really going for. Um, I think that was also true in the power PC era and they were wrong to some extent. I think a lot of people had a lot of, um, not a lot of problems, but you know, it was emulation. So it was slower. Mm -hmm. Um, and people bought new PCs and had software that ran 
slightly slower than it did before. Mm-hmm. You know, and I don't think that's the case here, but I don't have any clear indication that it isn't. Just that, you know, from what I've heard, you know, if it runs in Rosetta, it's been decent. Right. Not, um, you know, not a huge downgrade. Right. And uh, so the Silicon Ready website for that Rosetta 2 explanation. Mm-hmm. It's really important to know what Rosetta 2 yeah, is. It is. Uh, Rosetta 2, uh, it can run a lot of things. Uh, but this website gives you a specific insight into what it will run and what's already M1 optimized, which right. is really interesting. Because it, if you're a developer, a musician, video editor, photographer, all these kinds of different things, it gives you these categories for this. Depending on what kind of applications you use, uh, it would be really interesting to know what right, things are Rosetta 2 compatible, what things are M1 compatible, which things are neither. Right. Because before some of them you aren't. buy this expensive laptop to do things. Right. Like. And they also give some indication when they have it of when they expect it to be M1 compatible mm-hmm. in cases where there are beta versions of software or, or um, early access versions of software that are M1 compatible. It notes that. It's really, really comprehensive. Uh, I can't say that it's, you know, absolutely 100% um, you know, covers all the things, mm-hmm. but this could give you a really good idea of whether or not it's, you know, you know, reasonable decision for, for you. Right. And as we can see, uh, JetBrains is uh, fully M1 optimized and uh, not colluding with the Russian government, probably. Oh, God, <laughs> that whole thing. I, uh, we're not blaming JetBrains for what happened with SolarWinds. It's not End, your fault. End of story. It uh, doesn't matter how many Russians work there. Um <laughs> I don't know if that was exactly exactly how they would like it put, but um, good enough for the FBI. I get. We do need to, I, you know, I, the solar winds thing is complicated. This is harkening back to a conversation that happened completely off tape. But anyway, yeah, but. Uh, JetBrains, all you need to know is JetBrains didn't cause the solar winds hack. Probably. Uh, fairly sure. Probably. Probably not. I probably don't want to say that for sure yet. But well, you, you we'll know. let the FBI decide, I guess. We'll let the FBI decide. Okay. Well, I think this is it for us today. Uh, as always, yeah, you can I, uh, follow us on Twitter. I am at Austin Weber. And I'm at Clinton J. Walker. And uh, let's get these out here before the FBI breaks them. Oh, I hear them. So, if you want to listen to us, if you already are listening to us, you'll hear this message, and you can listen to us more at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get podcasts. There's all kinds of different platforms we're on, like 10 or 12 or 20,000. So, you can, if you want to find links, we have all kinds of places for links, anchor.fm slash use case. You can find all our links and things there. If you want to go to our website and find more links, find all of our recordings and everything else, usecasepod.github.io. All of our recordings are there. There are cool blog posts that only he has written. I haven't written any. <laughs> but all kinds of stuff there. You can find information about us and our contact info there, too. We're totally going to get you to write a blog post at some point. Uh, and then, as always, send feedback, suggestions, uh, any complaints, um, or you know, just nice things to uh, usecasepod at gmail.com. Or you can find our official Twitter handle, uh, which is at usecasepod. Right. And as always, remember, the power is yours. <laughs> <laughs>